0: How's it going, everybody? If you are watching this, maybe Thanksgiving is going on right now or maybe it just happens. It depends
1: on when I post this video, right, Leonard? Exactly, which I'm gonna guess is gonna be after now, but who knows what fickle finger, finger of fate. I was going for it's an old thing from laugh Never mind, keep going.
0: <laughs> That's all right. Um, but since it is around, The Thanksgiving holiday, we decided that we would talk about Survivor Series, specifically two that we wanted to highlight that are among our favorites since the event started. And uh, before we get to that, we can talk briefly about how the most recent Survivor Series just happened. And it was, you know, about a week or so After the AEW Full Gear event, which I have to say, from top to bottom, AEW Full Gear was one of the best shows I've ever seen. Um, There's really not a lot of down in that event to me. Um, But then Survivor Series happened. And if I'm being honest, I have not checked in to a lot of WWE content lately. I keep up to date with what's going on, but it really doesn't demand my full attention. And that is a big problem. Like I didn't need to really tune in to anything that was going on to watch the Survivor Series and understand, because it was basically just brand versus brand. There's not really a ton of tension or storyline. They try here and there, you know, with Biggie and Roman Reigns, but there wasn't a really a lot to be invested in, in my opinion. Um, but the event itself, I thought did not come off well there were a couple good matches uh i thought the tag team match uh rk bro and uh the usos i thought that that was really good actually both teams really had a lot of chemistry the crowd seemed to be hot for that one uh roman reigns and Big E put in good work but there was never any doubt in anybody's mind what was going to happen there and uh you know so the obvious outcome is what occurred and that's what i mean partly by you know no tension no uh suspense you know i mean There really, there's very little stakes. And I think that that's changed a lot since the Survivor Series began. What the Survivor Series is now is like a shell of its former self, in my opinion. We'll talk more about that as we get into the ones we chose. Um, But one of the things that happened during this most recent Survivor Series is Vince McMahon made an appearance and he brought with him one of Cleopatra's eggs from the movie Red Notice, which is on Netflix. And during the event, you saw more than a half dozen clips of The Rock and the fact that it was his, the 25th anniversary since he debuted at the Survivor Series. And what became quite obvious to me, and I feel sorry for the fans that maybe were got, bought this hook, line, and sinker, was that The Rock was not going to be there. And there was this stupid storyline where the egg was stolen. Vince claimed it was real. It was worth a hundred million dollars and that storyline was going to continue into raw. And this to me was a really pathetic attempt to make fans believe that the rock was going to show up. They wanted to build it as if he was going to be there and he's not there. He's in, he's in Australia filming a movie. So whether or not the match between he and Roman Reigns happens this year or WrestleMania 39, who the hell knows, who cares? I think that WWE is really, really making some bad moves in a time when their competition is slowly climbing upwards, in my opinion. So I just had to throw that out there because the egg thing with Vince, like I, I, as soon as I saw that and I, I, you know, I noted all the clips of the, you know, the past rock, accomplishments I was like he's not there and he's not going to be there um Leonard did you hear about this egg storyline I know that you did I did as
1: as we talked about I haven't been watching the current project because it just doesn't engage me although the more I hear about AEW the more I want to give them another try uh the more I hear about WWE the more I'm like yeah I'm probably good on that (laughs) uh but I did you know read the results and and you know listen to some some things online and watch some things and yes i heard about the cleopatra egg and i knew that was tied into the red notice movie and it just reminded me of the last time that an egg was a major part of survivor series which we're going to talk about we
0: will wow that's funny i did not even think about that as a connection um but yeah
1: absolutely Absolutely. Yes, but, for, but first, we're going to talk about the very first Survivor Series ever, uh, which I don't know if I would call it my favorite, but it's one I watched on the network. Uh, and uh, again, mean, I know Peacock. we complained yeah, Peacock, the WWE section of Peacock, as it were. Right. And and I think we complained about it enough, but I don't know if I've ever mentioned, it drives me nuts <laughs> with the pay-per-views that like, so Survivor Series, the first one is season one, episode one.
0: It's stupid. I hate it so much.
1: 88 is like season two, episode one. It doesn't make any sense. And they don't have them in like order either, like in the little strip, because you have to look, because I was just looking through, oh, Survivor Series. Oh, that's the first one. And I don't know if I had ever seen the first one in its entirety. Right. So I said, hey, let's sit down and watch it. And I did. So it was from November 26th of 1987. Uh, live attendance was 21,300. It was in uh, Richfield Coliseum where the Cavaliers used to play in Richfield, Ohio, which is outside of Cleveland. And there was a, a, a funny notice at one point where Jesse Ventura, Jesse Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon are on commentary. Jesse says he can't believe that he has to spend Thanksgiving in Cleveland. And Gorilla says, you're not in Cleveland, you're in Richfield. And Jesse says, that's even worse. That's a suburb of Cleveland.
0: I, I laughed when I heard that, and I thought of you immediately. I'm glad that you yeah. brought it up because I was definitely going
1: to say something. Being from Ohio, I'm from from south of Cleveland, but I've been to Cleveland, and yeah, the farther you go out of Cleveland, the worse it kind of gets. Try going to Parma sometime. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was only uh, four matches. I'm getting down to the match list here. Yeah, four matches. Yep. They were all five-on-five Survivor Series matches, which later they would go to four-on-four. The exception here is being the tag team match. It's five teams versus five teams. So it's 20 guys at the ring. And I'll talk about that match when we get there. But that match is probably the most ridiculous of the four to me. Uh, So I'll I'll go over the card. The opener, uh, we have Bruce Beefcake, Jake Roberts, Jim Duggan, Randy Savage, and Ricky Steamboat with Miss Elizabeth. Uh, Defeating Dangerous, Danny Davis, Harley Race, Hercules, the Hockey Talk Man, and Ron Bass with Bobby Heenan and Jimmy Hart. This this was the, it was 24, it took 24 minutes. Uh, This was the match that I liked the most on the show because I think it had the best pacing and I think it got the most creative with the booking. Uh, You had a double count out between Jim Duggan and Harley Race, who were feuding at the time. And at the very end, you've got Savage, Steamboat, and Roberts against Honky Tonk Man by himself. He, at some point, gets knocked out of the ring and just takes a watch, just leaves. And that fits his character. Jesse fantastically puts it over on commentary. It's a smart move. He's three on one. He can't win against these guys. He could get injured. That's going to make him lose the title if he gets injured. He was the IC champ at the time, of course. And so the smart move here was just to take a powder. And I thought that fit his character. I thought that made the other three guys look strong and made all three of them potential contenders for the IC title coming up. But of course, all three men had had their issues with the honky-tonk man over the years. So the first match, to me, was clearly the, the best and the one I liked the best.
0: Yeah, um, I I could probably agree with that. I guess the first and the last, to me, are pretty even. Um, You know, I I agree with you that it fits Honky's character to walk. Uh, Although, I will say, I couldn't help but think about the whole issue with Honky not wanting to lose the Intercontinental title to Macho Man down the road. Yes. lead to Macho Man winning the tournament at WrestleMania 4. So, the fact that he wasn't even going to take a pin when it was three on one here it kind of got in my head. Like, I wonder what the backstage politics were here, but nevertheless, I agree with you. This was pretty well paced. And, uh, as both gorilla and Jesse said, uh, Elizabeth looked really good here. Uh, Yes. I can't help it. I was, I I'm, I was a big fan of hers, but, uh, but yeah, Mm -hmm. this was a pretty
1: good match and, uh, you know, enjoyable to watch. And then uh, second match was a, women, a women's match, which I didn't know they had 10 women. I think they I thought the same stuff. thing.
0: That's funny. I had the exact same thought. I was like, wow, there's 10
1: women. And I don't even know who some of these people are. <laughs> I know. I, I don't. So this, this match is 20 minutes. You had the fabulous Mula working face. But the best part is she gets booed out of the building. Yep. Like when she's in there, she's getting booed, even though she's supposedly working face. So it's the fabulous mula and the jumping bomb angels of Itsuki Yamazaki and Nario Tatino, which I'm sure I botched. Rock and Robin, who is Jake Robert's sister, and Velvet McIntyre. They defeated Don Marie, not ECW Don Marie. This is a different Don Marie. <laughs> Donna Cristiano, the Glamour Girls of Leila Nikai, Judy Martin, and Sensational Sherry with Jimmy Hart. The Glamour Girls were the uh, women's tag champs at the time. Yes, they had women's tag belts in 87 and Sherry was the world champ. And Sherry, I thought looked fantastic here. I love the outfit she was in. It was like this one piece number, she had a cape. Um, She almost kind of looked like a, like a cross between a vampire and like a circus act performer. (laughs) But I think, I thought she looked really good here. Um, And this to me was better than I thought it was going to be. The women were fairly competent especially when you kind of weeded out the weaker elements which included Mula. Mula I thought was the worst person in this match cuz she was wrestling like a robot. Yeah. It was very paint by numbers and considering the fact that she I I don't know her age at this point point, didn't look it up but the fact that she had been wrestling for more than 50 years it was like, you know, uh, snapmare, you know, leads to a chin lock and then you and it was just all paint by numbers. It was all like day one wrestling school, but when it got down to three on three, which is McIntyre and the jumping bomb angels versus the glamour girls and Sherry, that portion I thought was really good. I really enjoyed that portion. If you don't know the jumping bomb angels, look them up, research them, watch some of their stuff. They were ahead of their time and you could bring them to today and just tweak their moveset a little bit. Just modernize them, and they could do it. And they would fit in fine with today's female wrestling uh, scene. I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but this was basically, after they weeded out the lesser women, was to set up the title matches. Because McIntyre and the Angels win. McIntyre pinned Sherry. The, you know, the Angels beat the Glamour Girls. So this is all about getting to those title matches for them. But this is a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be the worst match of the night. And I wouldn't give it that that moniker, especially, you know, the first part, like I said, eh, gets better.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I I agree with almost everything you said there. And you took a lot of the words right out of my mouth. I mean, this started out, oh. you have old, awkward women running around and like you know, they clearly had to get them out of there quickly and yeah mula was you know i guess intended to be the face here but some of her move sets like she still seemed to be working in the ring like a heel to me so there was like this clash going on with her but yeah i mean she was clearly you know up in age at this point and you have sherry in there and i'll be honest i did not i've not seen too much of sherry's in-ring work um as, as like a a talent um but uh, you know she was really good here as well once as you said once some of the awkward talent got out of there this became really really good to me the jumping bomb angels were just really really outstanding um i think that a tag match between them and the glamour girls could have been a match on an event and obviously back then back at this time there wasn't like a pay-per-view every month so mm-hmm. the idea of them being on a pay-per-view was probably far-fetched but i think that the those two teams worked well enough together i mean there was a body scissors at one point i can't tell you the last time i saw that um, oh yeah you know but yeah i mean this was this became really good at the end um and i just want to add one more thing the mm-hmm. segment before this match uh which was interviewing andre's team for the main oh event, yeah um, I made a note just about, you know, even though Andre was, you know, becoming in more pain and having health issues, you know, just in this interview, Andre is, you know, a very scary individual.
1: <laughs> like, yeah. this
0: his face. <laughs> like, you can't get past that,
1: but. Yeah, and then, of course, interviews with different teams, which I'm skipping, and there is at one point um, a vignette with the Million Dollar Man that basically recaps all of his – uh, money challenges and him yeah. buying things and him like eating he's eating squab for thanksgiving dinner because turkey is for the peasants <laughs> you know fantastic but i thought it was kind of odd that he wasn't included here right. um but uh, uh he was he was used they give him a segment so anyway the next up we have the tag team match and take a breath on this one uh we have the British Bulldogs of Davy Boy Smith and Dynamite Kid the killer bees of B Brian Blair and Jim Bernzell the fabulous Rougeaus of Jacques and Raymond, and I always forget that they started out as faces, because they're terrible faces. Strike Force of Rick Martel and Tito Santana and the Young Steins of Jim Powers of Paul Roma. They defeated the Bolsheviks of Borzukov and Nik- Nikolai Volkov, Demolition of Axe and Smash, the Dream Team of Dino Bravo and Greg Valentine, the Hart Foundation of Bret Hart and Jim hart the Islanders of Haku and Tama, with Bobby Heenan, Mr. Fuji, Jimmy Hart, Johnny Valiant, and Slick, every heel team had a manager and they were all at ringside. And uh, unique here, if your partner is pinned, you go too. Right. So if Zukov gets pinned, Volkov also goes. So that kind of, this match was still 37 minutes long, but kind of, I'm sure that helped. And what made me laugh so much, the early beginning of this is a complete cluster. Because you've got so many guys that the neutral corners are the only like uh, plain pieces of the ring. The rest of it, you have a a person on every other piece of the apron that brings like 90% coverage with people. So when you would throw somebody into the ropes, they would like hit somebody. Or they would be able to tag somebody. Or you would body slam somebody and just they would just from the roll be in their own corner. And it was just ridiculous because at some point, I believe it was with Jim Brunzel that Jesse was just going off of how completely stupid he was for not tagging people when he was so close to people to tag. So it was way too many people in the ring. And I was kind of surprised that this gets down to the Islanders versus um, the Young Stallions and the Killer Bees because they were not your premier teams. My thoughts on that is that maybe they were trying to give a rub to some of these lesser, to, to these three lesser teams. Hey, let's see if we can build them up, make something out of them. But at the same time, um, kind of what you talked about with, um, which I, I, now that I say that, I don't remember exactly what you said. But the idea here that you can take uh, a loss, that you can t- that, that you can have your, your world champions and strike force take a loss because it doesn't mean anything and it helps to build up and same thing with the women's match Sherry can take the pen and it helps us set up the program with velvet. You right. Know? Right. So the same thing here. And, and, and once again, when we got down to the Islanders, which I thought who I thought looked great, I think the Islanders are very underrated uh, against the killer bees and the young stallions. I thought that was a really good portion. I really enjoyed the end part. I didn't like the finish, which were the bees doing their mask switch. Um, which is a heel move. You've got these face, it's a face it team is. doing a, a, a heel mask switch, but they wind up getting the win, uh, which is fine. I actually thought this was the worst match because of the way it was staged. Again, this is the first year of the event. It's an experiment. I don't think they thought it out. I, I, I'm guessing they didn't put everybody out there like for a test run to see what it would look like because if they did, they probably would have change it up somehow. You know what I think would've been cool would be one guy for each team. Like you flip a coin or they decide and it's one guy representing each team. So you would still have 5 on 5. I think that would've been a cool way to go, but we got what we got here.
0: Yeah, uh this was not done that often uh for the for the reasons that Leonard just laid out and uh I mean gosh, 37 minutes this match was, but God, it really does feel like a lot longer uh it, it was somewhat of a chore to sit through despite the fact that there's so many good people in this match uh, but the fact is there's just too many people and uh a couple of notes that i made um was brett the hitman hart's pin which he would use when well into becoming a main eventer and I, I don't know leonard if you can think of anybody else that does a pin like that where he doesn't really hook the leg but he just he lays on the one guy on the one arm and then holds down the other arm obviously trying to make sure that the shoulders don't move oh yeah and like he was really unique in the in that he did that so
1: i just it was funny to me i just i noticed that when i was watching it but uh, yeah i've never really thought about that you are right that is a pin that he would do and i don't think that was a particular pin style i don't remember anyone else ever doing so i would be curious where he picked where he picked that up
0: Yeah. I also put a note down about the referee's shirt, which this match went so long and the referee had to be in so many places at once that his shirt was coming untucked towards the end, which I just thought was funny. Um, Mm -hmm. But to me, the, uh, the, the standout performance was the young stallions. And as you said about how, uh, you know, kind of odd it was about the teams that were there at the end. And I think exactly what you said, I think that they were trying to give these teams a push Um, and it's interesting to see that knowing that the fact that the young stallions would not really have a long run as you know they Mm -hmm. would kind of go on their separate paths um but they clearly got a, a little bit of a rub here uh because they put on a good performance you know i don't know what happened with them directly after this but
1: uh yeah it's uh but yeah i thought that they were standouts yeah. Um, then we get our main event, which is Andre the Giant, Butch Reed, King Kong Bundy, One Man Gang, and Rick Rude with Bobby Heenan Slick. They defeated uh, the Face Team, which kind of surprised me, Of Bam Bam Bigelow, Don Morocco, Paul Kogan, Kim Patera, and Paul Orndorf with Oliver Humperdink, who was um, Bigelow's manager. Uh, this, this this one was... I don't know. It felt very much of, of the moment because uh, it was all about... Hogan versus the big bats. And Gorilla does mention that there was like one ton of humanity on the heel yeah. side. And, you know, when, when Rick Rude is the smallest dude and he looks so small compared to these other guys, and he was, you know, a very muscular guy, but he looks so small compared to these other guys. Uh, and this is a, a perfect match for Andre because he can't do much, and he doesn't have to. He right. just stands on the apron pretty much the entire match. Everyone else works around him. Um, there's a lot – to me, there's a lot of dead weight on the face team. I am not a big fan of – well, Patera, uh, Morocco at this point was past his prime, put on a lot of weight. Face Orndorff doesn't work. Um and of course, this is all about Hogan getting most of the glory until he winds up getting eliminated by Countout because he can't get pinned. Right. Although Hogan getting pinned by, say, Bundy or Gang would have wonderfully set up, you know, a, a, a match, a future match between them. But the fact that you get Hogan out of there and it comes down to Bigelow, and then Bigelow gets the pins on Bundy and Gang. He then loses to Andre in very swift fashion because Andre can't do do much. As I said, um, the suplex that he gives to Bigelow was scary because he barely got him off the ground. It's like a half suplex, if that. Yeah, it was kind. Of, it was more like a like a double underhook toss. Yeah, <laughs> it was more of a toss than a suplex. Gorilla called it a suplex, um, but then after Bigelow you know, Bigelow loses, that's a great win for Andre. Andre looks great. And that helps to set up the rematch from WrestleMania three, which would happen in with the main event in in, in, the following year in 88, which would lead to WrestleMania four, etc. So but then Hogan comes back out and gloats, even though Bigelow was the last man for his team. And I, and I think we talked about this before when we rebooked WrestleMania 4, is that I felt they missed the boat on Bigelow, and that was probably because of Hogan not wanting someone to get up to his level uh, being a, a face main event. Um, as a kid, I remember just being completely blown out of the water by Bam Bam Bigelow when I first saw him. I think this was an, a, a possible step to giving him that push i don't think he necessarily needed to beat andre but i think he needed to stand tall at the end not having hogan come back to do that so this to me was just the usual hogan is is god just framed in a different put in a different wrapper
0: yeah, I mean, this was very much the Hogan must pose era. Anybody listens to something yeah. to wrestle with, um, you know, he had to pose. <laughs> so this was all about the Hogan-Andre tease. And that's precisely what it was When regarding that. It was just a tease. I agree with you. I think, you know, if Vince had to go back, I think he specifically would have done some different things with Hogan to make some of the build up in the drama surrounding the main events of the big pay-per-views mean more um so you know to like if he would have gotten pinned here by andre or you know maybe andre knocks him out of the ring and he gets counted out because he's just knocked out cult something you know they could have done something um something different but yeah it was like although i liked a lot of the action in the ring the, the way it was done was a little odd although bam bam wasn't very much a standout i thought mm-hmm. he gave a great performance rick rude gave also a really good performance because he was in there a lot before he got eliminated and uh yeah, I mean, as a kid, the Hogan must pose thing was like delightful for me every time it happened. Um, but yeah, in retrospect, you, you look at this and it would have been cool for Bam Bam to, to stand tall, you know, and like you say, I don't know if it was uh, more of the like, well, Hogan had to be out there to have the spotlight or if it was just like, well, we got to reinforce that it's Hogan Andre or, and so I kind of agree with you in that it's like of the moment uh the way this match unravels um but uh a couple of other notes that i made uh-huh. about the in-between segments um specifically i forgot to mention this when we're talking about the tag team one where there's so many guys in the interview segments that like they keep repeating the same like psych up actions like if you go back and you watch the people that aren't talking they keep doing like the same things where they're like, yeah, you know, like they keep. It's like watching a video game that's broken, like, <laughs> like, like they all they all don't know what to do. They're just standing around. Um, you know, the Rujo brothers are like right next to Dynamite Kid, which, if you know the history of that whole issue, to me, yeah. I find it funny. Um, but uh, yeah, so and then the other segment, which was the uh, the Hulk Hogan's team. To me, I thought, you know, they could put if they wanted to put a PSA out about cocaine and steroids, that's what you would watch. You would watch segments like that because those guys are like so revved up and like off the walls that I thought to myself, like, I don't know what they were doing before this, but uh, it probably wasn't, you know, just slapping each other in the face before like a big fight or something. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, the only other thing that we really didn't note about the Survivor Series is the fact that uh, this was pretty much created to counteract Starcade. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And, and like Vince, you know, as anybody who listens to the major podcast knows, like he would threaten the cable outlets to not carry Starcade. And if they did, then they wouldn't get WrestleMania 4. And a lot of them complied with him um so that's kind of why survivor series existed but uh the crowd was still really really hot for this event like like gorilla and jesse whose commentary is so good they even said especially during the main event that they had trouble hearing each other um they said that a couple times just because the crowd was so into this even though it was a new event like though i forgot to mention at the beginning they even laid out the rules with a graphic which I don't know if they ever did that in subsequent years, like, which I thought was funny. Every, all the rules are pretty obvious, except for number five, which I guarantee they never mentioned again, which was you can be eliminated via ref's decision due to injury. Like, which is obvious, I guess, but uh, like, the fact that that was in a graphic to me was interesting because this was the first time that they, that they tried this. So That would
1: be a great way to eliminate somebody would be through referee stoppage or because of injury. I think that would be a great way to save face for someone to prove how tough somebody was. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Now, now when you compare the Survivor Series 87, again, the first one ever, to a later one, say the next one we're going to talk about, that pay-per-view, the the next one we're going to talk about, is much slicker, the pace is much better in matches, the eliminations are quicker. I think the booking's more creative. Going four and four as opposed to five and five works better. Yeah. And that's me throwing it to you and your pick.
0: Right, absolutely. And the one that uh, I wanted to talk about was Survivor Series 1990. And uh, this event was the fourth annual Survivor Series event. It took place on Thanksgiving Day, November 22nd, 1990, at the Hartford Civic Center in hartford connecticut and uh there's one major thing that this event is known for which we'll get to uh the attendance was around 16,000, and let's get to the card here and we'll talk about some of the goings on as we go along uh there was a dark match here which was just odd considering the way the rest of the card was with Shane Douglas against Buddy Rose. Um, and he, Shane Douglas would, would win that match. So, uh, let's start with the first match and like, you know, but before we do, I'll just say one of the things that I liked about this event was the fact that the teams had names. Um, although this was the kind of the eighties Hogan, you know, cartoony character era, I like the fact that the teams have names. It really, to me, helped on the commentary because the commentary commentators, Gorilla and Riley Piper, which I'll, I'll comment on as we go, um, were able to refer to the teams by name uh, instead of just referring to each individual, like Captain's team, like this is Hacksaw's team, this is whoever's, team. you know. So I, I liked I liked that part of it. Uh, so you have. In the first match, the Warriors, which consists of Animal, Hawk, the Texas Tornado, and the Ultimate Warrior, defeating the Perfect team of Axe, Crush, Smash of Demolition, and Mr. Perfect with Bobby Heenan and Mr. Fuji. This match would be 14 minutes and 20 seconds. And I thought that, you know, back in the day, the whole comparison was between Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors, and Demolition. Demolition was, in my opinion, falsely looked at as a uh, Road Warriors ripoff. So they when they both teams were together in WWF, there was a lot of interaction between the two, but there wasn't really any satisfying blow-off mm-hmm. between these teams, which I thought was really dumb. And here you have them both d de- all both teams, five guys DQ'd. Which I thought was just so stupid and I've mentioned this before and I'm going to mention it again about the whole road warriors not being able to lose thing. I I just, you see it over and over again, when you look back at their matches, and like, come on, like, you know, why wouldn't I just I don't understand why. Okay, so they lose to demolition in this match, so that they can destroy demolition later. I don't understand how that's bad play but hey they, yep. did what they did so yeah this match um was pretty good though uh you know it was what it was i mean it's you know the ultimate warrior so i mean his matches aren't the best but uh uh the texas tornado was the intercontinental champion at the time and all of the warrior was wwf champion so you had both champions in the opening match which is re- interesting when you think about it um but, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this this one was what it was. It wasn't my favorite match on this card, but uh, I, I was entertained
1: for the most part. Leonard, how about you? Uh, you, you know, I, I was surprised that it was the world champion and the IC champ in the opener. But since you got, the and, and we're going to talk about this at the end, but this is the year of the ultimate survivors. So the winners go on to a match at the end of the night. So the warrior gets to come back. So I think that helps to... If he's opening and he's going to come back, then that's fine. The Warriors, I thought was a great team name because not only do you have the Ultimate Warrior and the Road Warriors, but Kerry Von Erich was once known as the Modern Day Warrior. So they're all Warriors. So I thought that was a great name. I like the fact that um, you have all three members of Demolition on on the team here uh, with with Mister Perfect Kurt Hennig. Um, I you know I know that Hennig and Warrior, I think, had some matches, but that wasn't a major program right. uh, for him. Uh, I wish they would have done more with that. I think Perfect is one of those guys that we, we've talked about before. There's only a handful of people that can get good matches out of the old. Savage was one, Rude was one, and I think Perfect was another and probably should have been given more of a main event run with him while he was champion. Right. Uh, but yeah, I thought this was a fine match. I enjoyed it for what it was. I agreed with you that I didn't like the Schmas to get rid of the warriors and demolition uh that just doesn't make a lot of of, of sense it kind of skirts the rules you know I, to me i think it would make more sense if you do a tit for cat thing you know animal beats crush crush beats animal uh hawk beats crush mash beats the hawk you know whatever and just have them take each other out uh and make it kind of even in that way uh, to set up more with them. So I know that uh, on the house show circuit, Von Erich would team with the Warriors against demolition. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, it was all, everyone wanted that big tag blow off between the two that we never really got. This was as far as a major pay-per-view event, seeing them all in the ring together, this is it. So I think it's kind of uh, historic from that standpoint. But like I said, I think it was a good opener Um, As again, you know, on the first show, all those matches were over 20 minutes long. This is under 15 minutes, Uh, but I thought the pace was good because even after you had the double DQ and you're down to Von Erich and Warrior against Hennig, that's a nice sequence. I think that works well. So Yeah,
0: and um, you had mentioned that we talked about the length of time of the matches. They clearly... I mean, since the first one, which we just talked about, the production values have gotten better, yeah. and the matches are more streamlined with four and four. And, you know, clearly, you know, one could argue, well, we need to get rid of those two tag teams, you know, to kind of get the pace moving along a lot quicker because this event is a lot shorter in total than the first one, which was mm-hmm. about two hours forty-four minutes. I think this one's around two twenty or so. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so they were clearly trying to move things along the next match is the million dollar team of the honky-tonk man greg valentine ted dibiase and a mystery opponent with brother love jimmy hart and virgil defeating the dream team of bret hart dusty rhodes coco beware and jim neihart it's 13 minutes and 54 seconds and this was a really good match and the reason that everybody remembers it and did i mention the other team was called the dream team i forget if i
1: mentioned that. yes yes. yeah not... the million dollar team versus the dream Team.
0: That's... right and so obviously the mystery opponent was the undertaker and i remember watching this live and was just kind of dumbfounded by what i was looking at because this was a you know obviously it's all been said over and over again but this is a character which we didn't see anything like that before and you can see the expressions of the people in the crowd Uh, When he walks down and they just the eerie funeral music and uh, it it was just, you know, what a, what a debut. And he gets in there and he gets rid of Coco Beware, which is one thing, but then he gets rid of Dusty Rhodes, which is, which was a pretty big deal in the world of wrestling. Mm -hmm. So um, and, but eventually he gets counted out. So he doesn't, he makes an impact, but he doesn't like lose right away either to kind of, you know, get some of that, new shine off of him. He's still kind of a shocking thing. So this was a, a, a tremendous match. Uh, Ted DiBiase looked really good here. And, uh, there was a, an extended segment here with DiBiase and Bret Hart, which to me was great stuff to watch. So, uh, this one is probably the one that stood out to me the most, but, uh, uh before Leonard, do you give your thoughts? We didn't really talk. You mentioned the grand finale match, which, you know, I guess we could give more thoughts on that later. But the whole idea here was all the survivors get to move on to the grand finale match. And we'll give our thoughts on that uh,
1: particular concept when we get there. But what are your thoughts on this second match? Well, as you said, the main thing people remember about the show is the debut of The Undertaker. And I have to compliment the way that he's presented here. The way he's shot when he comes out is from the bottom looking up and tilted. So he not only looks huge, but he looks weird. He looks a little bit off. Uh, They have great close-ups. And these close-ups are in taker packages to this day when they do those. Like when he removes his hat for the first time, when he's choking Bret Hart out in the corner, uh, they just had that figured out how they were going to present him. And that was great. The thing that I think hurts him is Roddy Piper on commentary is treating him like a joke. I totally agree.
0: We haven't talked about the commentary yet, but I totally 100% agree with you. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah. He treated, I mean, Piper's a commentator treated everything as a joke. Nothing was serious. He he was just blathering on, and the fact that he gives The Undertaker nothing. If you would have compared that to, say, Jesse Ventura, Ventura would have just been over the top on how menacing he was, how big he was, how quick he was for his size, they would have got him over. Piper's just doing funeral and zombie jokes. It's always doing, and it hurts. Um, I don't like that he gets himself eliminated by helping Brother Love, who is his manager, so that kind of makes sense, but it feels a little weak to me. Given that this is the year of the ultimate survivors, I would have had him and DiBiase win and survive and go on to the end and then you could have had him do the brother love bit or something like that. I think it just helps to get him over more if he survives the initial match, considering that he can move on to a secondary match and then you can do that to kind of get him out of there without necessarily getting pinned or submitted.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I think that that would have been cool. I didn't even think about that, but uh, that would have been a cool thing Um, just to kind of double down on the commentary. I remember when I, you know, cause I remember this event really fondly because there's a really great thing that happens in the debut of the undertaker. And then there's like one of the worst moments ever, which we'll get to that when it happens. Yeah. Um, but I remember when I first, when I started watching it again, I was like, ah, I'd forgotten that Roddy Piper was on commentary and like, I want to say to a degree, I got used to it as it went along. Um, but yeah, the, like I totally agree. He, he really does, you know, tarnish the debut there and, Um, Because whoever the cameraman was, those kind of swooping angles when they enter, um, even like Hogan's entrance later on, like they still show those clips of these guys entering. So my hat's off to whoever made that choice. But uh, but yeah, Piper's commentary, like there were parts about it that I liked in that it stayed true to his character, which, for instance, when anytime Hogan was mentioned, like Piper would get his digs in on Hogan because they didn't have, they weren't best friends by any stretch. So like, it was interesting to me that Piper was a face here, a good guy, but he was still telling the truth in how he felt about some of the people he had faced in the past. So let's uh, move on to our next match, which uh, to me are the best team names.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love these.
0: We have the visionaries of Hercules, Paul Roma, Rick Martel, and the Warlord with Slick defeating the Vipers of Jake Roberts, Jimmy Snuka, Marty Janetti, and Shawn Michaels, the Rockers. This match is the longest on the card of 17 minutes and 42 seconds. Um, this was uh, a really good match as well. The main part of it was to further the Jake Roberts uh, model Rick Martel storyline which they did really, really well, I thought. Um, and the whole you know, thing at the end was the fact that the entire Visionaries team moved on to the grand finale. So, you know, you have Paul Roma, who has been both of the events. And, you know, I'm a Paul Roma, Mark. Yes. Um, you know, they even he moves on to the grand finale. Um, so yeah, I mean, this was the, uh, the commentary I spent a lot of time talking about Jake's eye and it's, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still a sucker for that whole storyline and the blindfold match. It's so silly, but oh. like, as a kid, I only have fond memories of this storyline and the whole arrogance thing, <laughs> but, uh, Leonard, what'd you think of this one?
1: Well, as you said the team names here are great because the visionaries play on the fact that Jake, at this point storyline, could only see out of one eye. Right. And I like later how when um, they're doing the buildup for the, the main event that um, Martel puts over, we had a vision about this. You know, we had a vision that we and I, I believe I don't know. Do you know this? Are they the only whole team to survive? I would guess not that that someone, some other whole team.
0: Yeah. I want to say probably that happened before, somewhere. but I, you know, or happened again, I should say. But yeah, yeah, it's
1: happened again. This was the first time it happened. And I thought that that was some, some different booking. I thought that yeah. was some gutsy booking to have them all, um, win and, and advance. Uh, one thing that is interesting to note here. So in the last match, um, even though Dusty Rhodes was the captain, your biggest name, Bret Hart's your last guy on that team. Uh, here, Jake Roberts is the last guy on the team, but the next to last guy is Shawn Michaels, even though Snook is the bigger name. So I think what's very interesting about these early Survivor Series matches is I know there's a thing that I believe I heard Jim Ross say, that sometimes you just put that dog in the, dog in there to see if it hunts. And I think that's one thing they felt they could do with Survivor Series. Let's let... Shawn Michaels have a little extra time in the ring see what he can do. Let's give Brett a little extra time in the ring see what he can do. So I think you get that a little bit here with this. Uh, um, I I really like the way that this kind of played out because, again, it was different. We never saw a whole team survive before. So the way that they kind of built that up and it came across, I think, worked pretty well. Now, would I have chosen Power and Glory and the Warlord to advance to the end of the night? Probably not. But the way that they constructed it, I think, uh, works here. So, um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, in I, I just like... The, it would have been better if, like, instead of the Warlord, the Undertaker advanced. <laughs> right, right, right. I don't know if you move the Undertaker to this team or you just you have the Warlord get eliminated. Uh, but, uh, you know, e- e- either or. it was. It, 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 I like the booking of it because it was different.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to mention in this match as well, like... Although I'm, you know, I don't really like talking about him, you know, similar to the way I would talk about Benoit, but Snuka looked incredibly jacked here. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I don't know what he was doing. I'm not going to speculate, but like he was incredibly ripped here in this match, uh, you know, sporting the goatee
1: and everything. So he looked jacked until like a few years before he died. Yeah, you know, I, I I remember seeing him. I think it was an indie show, maybe in the late '90s, and he's still jacked.
0: Yep. Um. So let's move on to the next match, which is mm-hmm. the aptly named the Hulkamaniacs of Big Boss Man Hulk Hogan, Jim Duggan, and Tugboat defeating the natural disasters of the Barbarian, Dino Bravo, Earthquake, and Haku with Bobby Heenan and Jimmy Hart. This match was 14 minutes and 49 seconds. And no real surprise on what happens here the big feud with this was Hulk Hogan and the earthquake uh, but it you know these a lot of names in this and I one of the notes that I made about this because the match you know plays out the way a Hulk Hogan match would in this era but Hulk Hogan was still the main attraction here and oh. I, I I you know you look at the fact that now yeah as you as we mentioned you know the warrior would come back in the grand finale and get his moments but Hogan is still the main attraction you have the warrior opening the event um you know and he has his fans you can hear them cheer in this um but it's kind of clear to me where the focus still lies um but yeah I mean this this match was fine for what it was you know if if people have grown tired of Hogan and you know some of the routines of his matches and they probably didn't like it very much uh, but you know I-, I thought it was fine he was the one that moved on to the grand finale obviously so
1: leonard what do you think yeah i mean it's almost like the main event from 87 it's hogan being hogan um yeah. he's got a team of big beefy dudes they're up against a team of big beefy dudes that should have um, been one of the names right the big beefy, beefy dudes, dudes. yeah <laughs> Snap snap into it. Um, But but when this started, I knew, well, Hogan's going to – without looking ahead and without remembering, I was like, well, Hogan's definitely going to move ahead. Um, So, yeah, there's not a whole lot I think I can say about this more other than the fact that I think it was predictable. And, again, you've got Hogan looking like uh, a beast going over. Again, Haku's the smallest guy on the heel team uh and and you know hogan pretty much mows over everybody else so it was it was a means to an end yeah i mean
0: it's it's kind of crazy you know when you talk about haku being the the smallest guy because i mean if you look at i mean i don't know much about the barbarian outside of wrestling but i mean dino bravo was like you know an incredible strong man earthquake was a sumo wrestler and haku Mm -hmm has obviously legendarily been known as the toughest guy in wrestling.
1: So Yeah, well, but Barbarian was kind of known for being a badass too. And he is, I forget what his his, his nationality is, but he's somehow connected to that island heritage. Oh, right, right. Um, yeah, I, di- I don't remember exactly what it is. And the, the Barbarian is still built. I don't know if you remember the story that we saw him a couple years ago um, at a show and we we'll talk to him and a good friend of the show dan weber got to chop the barbarian oh that's and right we, yeah yeah. And when we that's were that. driving home dan's hand was still shaking because he is still solid you know at, at and i don't know how old he is but at that age still just solid um here too i forgot to mention i i don't like a couple of the eliminations tugboat earthquake brawl to a double count out considering that they would become a tag team at some point, I thought that was a little interesting. Uh, Duggan loses by disqualification. So I think you have some kind of, you have a couple of weak eliminations, but again, it kind of helps to grease the wheels to get to where you're going. Right.
0: Well, our next match, we have the alliance of Butch and Luke of the Bushwhackers, Nikolai Volkov and Tito Santana, defeating the mercenaries of Boris Zukov, Sergeant Slaughter, Sato and Tanaka, the Orient Express with Mr. Fuji and General Adnan. This match is 10 minutes and 52 seconds. And surprisingly, Tito is the one that mm-hmm. moves on here. And we're a big fan of Tito here on this show. Yeah. And um, so I thought it was great that he moved on because you know they wanted to give somebody else, you know, to the faces in the grand finale. Um, so I thought it was cool that it was it was Tito, but the accomplishment in this match despite the fact that Tito was the survivor was slaughter and as we know what happens after this slaughter becomes the wwf champion at the royal rumble so they wanted to make sergeant slaughter look strong and they did that because he pretty much destroyed the entire team except for tito and even destroyed tito because he got disqualified that's how they had slaughter walk away from this looking Like such a, you know, heel badass, uh, because General Adnan comes in and hits Tito with the flag. So, so yeah, I mean, this match to me wasn't altogether good if in terms of technical wrestling, but there were so many characters in it that I found interesting and fun to watch. And, uh, so, you know, you have Slaughter's face painted with camo and (laughs) just, um, you know, he was even, you know, Slaughter looked old even here, but he you know, he can yeah. still go in the ring. Um, so, yeah, this match, this match was fine. Um, glad to see Tito move on. But uh, the goal was to get Slaughter to the main event status. So,
1: yeah, again, I like the booking here. You know, Tito advances and he does get two pins. He eliminates Zukov and, and Tanaka here and that's in quick order because uh, I'm looking at the, at the list here and Slaughter's by himself at two minutes and 13 seconds and he's four on one and he eliminates between 525 and 653 in the match he gets rid of the Bushwhackers and Volkov right. and again the, the booking of that I thought was really creative um, I, I, I really I really you know, like that, if your end goal is we don't want Slaughter to move on, but we want Slaughter to look badass and position him for that main event match, with Warrior, at the Rumble. This, I think, was a good way to do it, because, as you said, too, even though he loses, he loses by disqualification, because General Adnan blatantly attacks Tito Santana. So, I did think it was interesting that Tito was the one who, who advances here. Um, of course, as you said, we love Tito, so I was happy to see him being the one to advance. And again, I, as you said, it's not a great match, but the way they laid it out and the booking of it, I thought was creative. I liked how they did that. And before we move on to the main event, which is the survivors, because you mentioned this, they have to give somebody else to the face team. The fact that it's 3 fine 5 to me doesn't make any sense. And the whole night long, Gorilla, after the Visionaries win, Gorilla Monsoon on commentary keeps talking about, well, Warrior's by himself. He's five on one. He's all by himself. It's like, well, why? Because you never, if you said at the top of the show, okay, here's column A and here's column B. And if column A survives, they move to team A1. If column B survives, they move to team B2 or whatever. But you didn't explain that. It was just, oh, the faces are on this side and the heels are on the other when they consciously didn't, at that time, recognize the idea of baby faces and heels. They they didn't talk about that. So to me, it would have made sense if you would have had the visionaries because they survived as a team. Okay, cool, you advance. And you put DiBiase with Hogan Warrior and Santana. And, And I just think that would be a funny dynamic. I think it would be a unique dynamic. And the fact that, like, and I would really love to see the, the beginning of the match. Like, D.B. Aussie's in there, and he's getting his butt kicked, and, like, they won't tag. Like, he goes for a tag, and they won't tag, and he just gets beat. I think that would have been hilarious. I think that would have been a good way to do it. But before we talk about that actual match, your thought on the idea that's three against five and how that just doesn't make sense. At least it doesn't Well, I mean, I think the logic that they were going with
0: was the fact that the faces needed to kind of come from behind they needed to overcome this monumental task of defeating five guys and they wanted to i guess my my thoughts are that they wanted the fans to think that there's no way that these three guys can beat five other guys there's just no way what's going to happen oh my gosh they actually did it so I agree with you, again, that, you know, they could have done other things. And so one of the reasons I like this event the most is because of the grand finale match. I think that this concept had so much potential. And I think based on what Leonard said, there were some kinks that could have been worked out because, you know, they didn't really say like it was just kind of understood. Well, these are the bad guys. They're going to be on the bad guy team. And these are the good guys. Like they didn't spell it out, but they could have messed with this you know, and made it better. And I I know the Bruce Pritchard's talked about it on his podcast before, and, you know, they just not something they went back to. I really wish that they would have, because I think, like you said, if they had like put all the names in a hat and whoever came out, it was going to be even teams as much as that is possible. Um, And then there would be one sole survivor. You know, I think that would have been interesting, Um, but uh, you know, they didn't really do it a lot. So this is what you got, but I, I thought it was a cool idea and uh let's just lay out in case anybody isn't paying attention who's in it we have hogan tito santana and the older warrior defeating hercules paul roma rick martel ted de and the warlord in nine minutes and seven seconds and uh yeah i mean it's uh to me very much the hogan show here and hogan tags warrior in at the last minute And Warrior gets the pin because he's the champion, but uh, you know Hogan was getting like as they say getting his stuff in like so you know but he gave the Warrior the pin so like he you know it's like here you go you can do the you know but uh, but yeah I mean I I I just I really dig this concept and I agree it wasn't you know blemish free (laughs) here but I I really do wish they would have kept it to some degree. And uh, just to kind of comment on the whole concept of the survivor series, as it relates to what they're doing now, like after this in 91, they would have like a world title match. It would be Hogan and the Undertaker, the
1: greatest challenge.
0: Right. And so, and little by little, as the years went on, they got away from having just nothing but elimination matches. And on one hand, I understand why, but on the other hand, now it's just a pay per view. And like it might still be considered the big one of the big four, but to me, it's really not anymore. Like to me, this is just a pay per view. Now they do the whole brand versus brand thing. I've yet to meet somebody that really cares who wins between mm-hmm. Raw or SmackDown. Maybe there are people out there that do. Um, but I wish they would have stuck with the simple four on four or five on five concepts, because in the events that we've covered and in between those, the ones we haven't covered from 87 to 90, the crowd is into this concept. They like this idea and they're cheering and they're rooting for the teams and who their favorites are. And like the crowd is behind this idea. So I think they could have stuck with it. You know, that's, that's, that's me because this was an event I really liked in the past. And now I kind of watch it because still in the back of my head, I think, well, this is one of the big four. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it, it never turns out to be, to earn that descriptor in my opinion. So Leonard, what
1: uh, do you think? Well, I did, the first of all, with, with the Ultimate Survivor's match, uh, my idea is that probably the, re- way, the reason they did that well, so you could have Hogan and warrior both standing tall at the end of the night you got right. your two biggest draws together at the end of the night but you don't want them on the same team to start with you know you spread them out and then bring them together um and um i was surprised that rick martell got eliminated by count out we have to protect rick martell by count out yeah. i don't quite get that
0: yeah that that was that was i aw- guess i mean like they, they try to move these matches along, but then, the, like, the way they have people eliminated, sometimes it makes sense, and other
1: times it just doesn't. Yeah, um, count-out didn't, didn't to me. I think if Tito and Martel would have brawled out, and that's a double count-out, that makes sense, kind of. And what I thought was interesting was they were hyping that, like, in two days, they were doing a Saturday Night's main event. Or No, it was a main event. It was the main event right one of those which i think was on friday which was the very next night which i didn't know and the main event of that was going to be the ultimate warrior versus ted dibiase so they mentioned that a little bit but it probably would have made sense if dibiase takes the count if he's going to face the warrior the next night you know um but that was i thought it was interesting because they do a pay-per-view and then the very next night they're doing a free tv a big free tv event and that's interesting because the following year 91 which you mentioned they would do survivor series on thursday for thanksgiving and then on tuesday have this tuesday in texas okay. so it's like they were kind of experimenting with the idea of how close can we do big events it's like and continue yeah. to draw it's
0: like kind of batshit crazy when you think about it
1: <laughs> yeah about doing stuff that close and telling a story that's gone now tune in two days from now to see the end of it um. <laughs>
0: So yeah, the one thing we didn't mention, which I alluded to earlier, the one of the, you know the fact that the Undertaker debuted was one of the best yeah. things and one of the worst things was mm-hmm. the egg hatching, and that occurred towards the end of the event. Yes, um, and you know I believe that was the
1: the segment between the alliance the alliance versus the mercenaries and the ultimate survivor. So they Ramp could put it Ellie, Right, because they needed now, team before, to have some rest. Before we get to that, I would like to mention there was another significant segment. I mentioned how Ted DiBiase wasn't on a team in 87 and they did a vignette with him. Randy Savage was not on a team here. And they right. do an interview with him on the stage. He's the Macho King at this point. And it's basically him calling out the Warrior and wanting a title match and saying he's going to claim his belt back. So there's not a whole lot there, but I found it was interesting that Savage wasn't there, wasn't on team, I should say. But they still used him. They gave him time.
0: Yeah, no, I. I yeah. you're right. I'm glad you mentioned that because I loved his outfit. How many yeah. people could sport, could sport red and white stripes like that, I mean, gosh, I mean, you know, back when he had robes, you know, I wasn't really big on the macho man with robes, but the outfits he had when he was the macho king are like spectacular to me. Yeah, um, But yeah, this, yeah, they were really building the warrior um, macho king storyline here and uh, would continue to do so. Um, but the big segment and we had seen for weeks, the build up to the egg what was going to come out of the egg. And I think, you know, it was rumored that it could have possibly, you know, people created rumors that it could have possibly been a talent, you know, like flair or something. Pritchard has denied that was ever the case. Um, It was the gobbledygooker. That was what they wanted to have come out. And that's what came out. And you can hear, you know, initially anyway, all, you know, very clear booze from the crowd and uh for those who might not know it's Hector Guerrero in that suit uh doing some of the uh flips and what have you in the ring with Mean Jean. Gene this segment's obviously terrible um at the time I, I remember just being like this is silly you know I as a kid it's like you don't really recognize this as shit but uh, maybe I did subconsciously who knows know. but uh yeah it just was you know kind of a fart in church this uh this segment. I guess the crowd was somewhat getting into it. Maybe they were into Mean Gene doing stuff more than the Gobbledygooker. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Um but uh but yeah so this is a segment that is just kind of reviled this day and age. But uh Leonard, do you have a fondness for the Gobbledygooker?
1: You know, even as as a kid I didn't watch the the show live. I saw you know the segments on the syndicated programming that, that weekend. And when I saw the gooker, my idea I remember as a kid thinking, well, what is that? Like why are they gonna <laughs> like can he, is he a wrestler? Is he gonna wrestle? I mean, Hector Hector Guerrero is a great wrestler. Yeah. And he's a great guy to put in that suit because of of what he can what he can do even within a suit like that. But he can't wrestle. I mean, I don't know if Bruce Pritchard had ever talked about it or anyone else on their podcast about what the idea for the gooker was. I mean, the only thing I could see him being is a time killer. Is that he would come out and maybe play with the kids and dance with the kids and kill time when you needed to kill time, right. um, but you know he couldn't he couldn't wrestle like that. But it's very interesting the fact that at this event you have giant, turk animated, anamorphic turkey man dancing around, and you have undead zombie man. Yeah. Two ideas that on paper are batshit insane and don't look good. And one is the worst idea ever. And the other is the greatest idea ever.
0: Yeah. I mean, you so also a lot- have a captain of a tugboat. and Yes.
1: Uh, <laughs> just- you know, th- this was the height of the cartoony gimmicks. Definitely. Yeah, it really, and more it more it really it. was. Yeah. And, and, you know, you mentioned it after a little bit. I think the crowd doesn't necessarily hate it. They just don't care for it. They don't care about it. Right. Because there wasn't a lot of noise going on. You know, you hear Monsoon and Piper trying to push it. Oh, the kids love it. Blah, blah, blah. They're not. They're not loving it. So, you know, I do like the fact that they've embraced the Gooker in years since as a joke. Like, he was in the Gimmick Battle Royal and he pops up every now and again. Yeah. And they've embraced it as being, okay, this is bad. And we embrace that badness when they want to. And the fact that that Russell crap used the name the Gooker Awards for their worst of the years you know should tell you something but the, you know this we mentioned the pay-per-view is mostly known for the debut of the undertaker but its second most known thing is the gobbledygooker it's become yeah. kind of a legend so bad that it's 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 infamous and 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 again the only thing that i say to it is what was the plan which i'm which i would guess is out there somewhere because was it a one off was it to be a filler Again, Hector can't wrestle in that, suit. So that would just look stupid. I don't, I don't know, um, but it was interesting. And yeah, I had heard all the all the rumors seem to have been like afterwards, like people saying, "Oh, it could have been Taker coming out of the egg, or it could have been a new talent or a new manager or something." The Undertaker I, thought that that was meant for him. We haven't talked about this; it's on his documentary. Okay, I, I, I hadn't I hadn't seen that, so talk yeah, about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just that's all. Like in his in the documentary. Like he talks about how he was scared to death that he was going to be Eggman, like that he was going to have to come out of this egg. And, uh, you know, obviously that didn't come to pass. Uh, But because both of those things happened at the same time, he had that fear, um, which is funny because, you know, if
1: he had been Eggman, we wouldn't be talking about him today, would we? Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask, how would that affect his career? And I think, one, they wouldn't show his debut. If he would have still went on the trajectory that did, they would never show his debut. They no. wouldn't show him coming out of the egg. They wouldn't do that at kind
0: all. Kind of like his name initially being Kane, the Undertaker. They don't, yes. they don't, they, you'll hear people mention that every once in a blue moon, but they really don't hammer that home. Like they, like, it's, I think it, it was in his um, documentary series, but that's about it. Uh, other than that, they really don't talk about that.
1: Yeah, and, you know, and the, and the fact, too, that he moves on very quickly from Brother Love as his manager to Paul Bearer. Um, yeah, and, that, and that gets mentioned, you know, and that's probably because Bruce Pritchard is still working with the WWF and always had a decent um, relationship with them. Right. That it was mentioned, you know, he was the manager from day one and that he was, Ted DiBi- you know, Ted DiBiase was the benefactor and, like, brought The Undertaker in, bought The Undertaker and brought him in. And, of course, they don't talk much about the Undertaker versus Undertaker match from SummerSlam no, because don't. of that. Although I will I will mention in that long-term booking fed that I'm doing, I've got uh, Hulk Hogan is feuding with Andy Kaufman. And since I can't get the Undertaker, Andy Kaufman has hired the Undertaker to, nice. to fight Hulk Hogan. And, and um, uh, Kaufman always slips up on commentary and calls, or on a promo, calls him The Underfaker instead of The Undertaker, that's, so. That's, that's outstanding.
0: I like that. I <laughs> don't know if we have The Underfaker in our fever Dreams list on, off the top of my head. He might be there, mm-hmm. check.
1: I think, I think he is, but.
0: Anywho, uh, yeah. let, let us know what you think about these two survivor series pay-per-views and what your favorite is. And, you know, to be honest with you, uh, I, I mean, I remember the other survivor, like the other survivor series pay-per-views. I didn't really go back and look at each one to see, Oh man, what was the best card from top to bottom? Like this was the one that I thought of immediately uh, because of the grand finale match and just, you know, the team names and all that. I just thought was really cool. Um, The, uh, I remember the, you know, I remember the gang rules one and I remember the deadly game one famously where the rock turned heel uh, against Mick Foley at the end. Um, It's also where Dwayne Gill uh, came back uh, into the tournament. But uh, so I remember some of the other Survivor Series pay-per-views and like they have their good moments and bad moments, but uh, I'm partial to the elimination style match and uh, that being the centerpiece. Um, So let us know what your favorites are. And uh, please comment and uh, like this video, subscribe to our channel, check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and for Leonard, my name is Chad, I hope you had a great holiday, and Alexa will see you out.